more we know about Jesus, the more we will trust him. You don't just trust strangers, right? Think about people in the, in the natural sense. You meet somebody at work. You meet someone at school. You meet someone in the grocery store. You meet someone in the community. You don't just right off the bat, as soon as you meet them, start telling them your whole history, right? What the, the things you're dealing with, what's going on in your household, what's going on with your kids or your siblings or your marriage or your work. You don't just divulge your whole life story to a guy that just walks up from the supermarket and says, hey, can you tell me where the pork and beans are? Oh, by the way, did you know that I'm just a cancer survivor? You know, you don't, you don't typically do that, right? So, so trust, trust forges faith. Trust knowing a person forges trust so the more we know someone the more comfortable we get the more we pick up on their confidentiality their character their morality their integrity it gives us a more greater comfort level to trust this person so by knowing jesus we come to trust jesus and faith at its very core if you take away all the hebrew and greek you take away all the aramaic Aramaic and Koine Hebrew and Greek is just faith equals trust. We trust the Lord. We have faith in the Lord. They're essentially one and the same. The two terms, as far as this is related, are synonymous. Is that helpful? Doesn't that make faith more in reach? Doesn't it? You know, faith is just bantied about. It's such a nebulous term. We can't really wrap our minds around it because it's abstract. You can't see faith. Show me faith. What is faith? Give me an example of faith, Pastor Will. Put it here on the table. Do one of your science projects. Well, I can't. You know, I can sit in this chair and say, well, this chair can can hold up my 135 pounds. But that's not really faith. Why y'all? Wait a minute. Y'all just going to laugh in my face and I'm up here preaching? <laughs> no, so, so, no. Faith can support my weight. And, and so I trust this chair. This chair. This chair, by the way, that I bought for Sister, Sister Janet Smith that she ain't used three times since I bought it. But I still love her. It ain't nothing personal about it. I'm not criticizing Sister Janet, so don't give her a hard time after service. Just ask her why she didn't use the chair that she asked for that Pastor Will went out and bought and brought it to the church. No, I'm just kidding. She said, I know. She said it's not the right height. I know. It's all good. And, and by the way, by the way, on a side note, Coach had a chair just like this that Sister Janice could have used, and we wouldn't have had to buy this one. It was, his was silver. He took his home. So there you go, you know. So I'm, I'm just throwing coaches. Hey, if y'all going to throw me under the bus about my 135 pounds, I'm throwing coaches under the bus for taking his metal chair home. <laughs> but so faith, so faith might can be demonstrated. You can see faith demonstrating that I can sit here and not fall on the floor. But you still don't see faith. You see the result of faith. I trust that this chair will support me. But you can't see that trust, right? So here in this passage in Luke 7, verses 1 through 10, the Lord gives us an insight, watch this, an insight into what faith looks like. He's putting visuals to faith. He's putting shape and form to faith. 
And so I have five expressions that I think will give faith, give, give a picture or give shape to this man's faith that is so great that the Lord says there was no one in Israel that had faith like the Roman centurion. Okay, here's what it says. Verse 1, Romans 17. I'm not going to be long. I just gave a long introduction, but I'm going to make the sermon right to the point. After he finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion, I like the King James Version. I think the NASB also says a certain centurion. I like that because the guy was special. I think the reason the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to say a certain centurion as opposed to just a centurion is because centurions by nature, that is guys that are military officers with command over about 100 men, hence the word centurion, a century, they were responsible for 80 to 100 guys. These guys were not known for being religious, for being compassionate, for being kind, for being loving, for being helpful, for being generous. They were, they were mafia types. They were overlords. They were godfathers. They were criminals. These guys were not nice guys. They basically had no oversight. They could do whatever they want. They didn't require a trial. They could kill you upon sight. They didn't require due process. They didn't have to give you a just hearing. These guys were just basically warlords that were responsible for a certain district under Caesar or under whoever the Roman Empire was, emperor was, and they had unfettered access to authority, power. And they were typically vicious and feared. And they were extremely well paid. The average foot soldier made about 300 denarii a year. A Roman centurion made 3,700 denarii a year. And that's just what he acquired legally. That was his paycheck. And I tried to put it into U.S. terms. I looked at so many websites and books. The closest I could come up with is the guy made somewhere just south of $200,000 a year U.S., and um, that was just what he attained legally. He could have shaken down people and taken bribes and other stuff illegally and padded his income, you know, upwards of 300 grand U.S. And so these guys were well taken care of. No wonder this centurion could pay for them to have a new synagogue built. And he bankrolled the whole thing. The Bible says now a certain centurion whose servant was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. I, by the way, I particularly chose the English Standard Version for this particular reading because some of the words I liked, and that is they pleaded with Jesus. And that to me, that that is just such a mind boggling thought because the Jewish elders essentially hated Jesus. He was cutting in on their income. He was cutting in on their reputation. He was cutting in on their uh, little racket they had going at the temple. He was not considered their friend. And so for them to come pleading means that this centurion carried a lot of weight that these Jewish elders would swallow their pride, put aside all of their differences that they had against Jesus and what he stood for and what he taught. And come and say, will you please come and heal this man's servant? That took, that took a, a lot of humility on the part of the Jewish elders. That's why I put them as a key character. They're a key player in this little, you know, two-part play. Because these guys 
are not known for coming to Jesus for anything but to try to trap him or embarrass him or trick him or undermine him. They're certainly not there to make him look good or to ask him of a favor. Notice, do you know of any Pharisees or Sadducees throughout all of the New Testament? Do you know of any, especially in the four Gospels, that ever asked Jesus to heal them? And you know some of them had to be sick. I mean, you know, you know some of them had to have issues. Everybody needs more, a little more money, a little more health. They might need a friend, a favor. They may need a job. None of these dudes humbled themselves that I'm aware of that were considered a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe or an elder to ask Jesus anything. And here a whole coalition of them, elders, plural, the Bible says, came and asked Jesus, hey, will you come and heal this man's servant? Not, not heal the man. Heal this servant. This is an unknown entity. You know, the only person that we haven't met in this entire account is the servant. We don't know his name, rank, or serial number. We don't know how old he was. We don't know exactly what his position in the house. Was he the butler? Was he a valet? Was he the dishwasher? Was he the gardener? Was he the pool boy? We don't know what his role was. All we know is the Bible says that he was highly valued by the centurion. And the centurion thought highly of him. And the centurion loved him so much so that he asked Jesus, a Jew, Jesus, a rabbi, Jesus, a teacher, Jesus of a different religion and nationality, if he would come and heal his servant. And by the way, the, 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 and I'll get into this maybe next week. The centurion really never, the centurion really, really never, asked Jesus to come to his house, nor did he ever expect Jesus to come to his house. That's, that's lost in this story, by the way. You know, we don't really get that nuance by, and this is called addition by subtraction. Additionally, the, the centurion never expected Jesus to darken his door. I say additionally because it's subtracted from the text because we don't actually see those words, but we see pure evidence of them. Why? Because the centurion sent two emissaries, two groups of people to request something for Jesus. The first group he sent, will you heal my servant? The second group he sent said, oh no, I don't want you to come to my house. It's not necessary that you come to my house. You just speak the word. And that, to me, tells me that the centurion never expected Jesus to come to his doorstep. He never expected to hear him knocking on the door. He always, always and only expected Jesus to heal his servant long distance. <laughs> that's, that's next level, guys. That's next level. Okay, let me wrap this up. I know I get, I see that's. That's why, that's why me and Coach make such a great team because I, you know, I get so hung up in these details. And when Coach said 40 chapters in Jeremiah, see, Coach, Coach could teach Jeremiah in a year. I would need like three years probably. And we, we're going to say the same thing. It's just that I'm going to say all this other stuff that y'all say. Like, can you just see Coach just sticks to the script. He just what you see is what you get. You know, Will is the one that has to add all of this stuff in 
Now what was 40 chapters is 80 chapters. <laughs> and it takes us three years to get through it, but no, it's all good. We're a good, we're a good pair. We're a good pair. I love, I love Coach, and I love Wednesday nights. And, and we, 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 need some, we need some classes that are in-depth, and we need some classes that are just cover the text. Let's just, you know, stick with the script. And we, we need that. We need that balance. Amen? You know, and I, I think that's just the divinely inspired. And I'm just so thankful for Coach and Wednesday nights. And I'm just so thankful for this. Amen. Amen. So, so let, me, let, me just start, let me just start with just a couple quick points and I'll wrap it up. I have five things that I wanted to say, but I'm just going to stick to two. Here's, here's number one. Let, let me, let me just, just say this. The reason I thought last Sunday's message was so important about Capernaum is because I think Capernaum represents some of us. Notice I didn't say a lot of us. Notice I didn't say all of us. But I think Capernaum kind of represents some of us. Why do you say that, Pastor Will? Because Capernaum was one of those cities that saw so much of Jesus' miracles. They saw so many signs and wonders. They saw his power. Capernaum witnessed stuff that none of the other cities witnessed. If you read Matthew 8 and 9, both of those chapters, you'll see that most of those miracles were, were, were uh, done in Capernaum. They, they, Jesus even said, hey, Capernaum, you guys, if you read Matthew 11, he says, you guys saw so much stuff. I'm going to just overmodulate a little bit. You guys saw so much stuff that you're going to be held accountable for that. You're going to be held accountable for what you have seen. You've seen so many miracles and so many signs and wonders that had Sodom and Gomorrah seen what you saw, they would have repented. That's Matthew 11. That's a heavy indictment. Jesus listed about six cities, five or six cities that were going to hell. That's what he said. I'm not making this up. He used a little nicer word. He used Hades, but same difference, you know. And he said, you're not going to heaven. You're going to Hades. And that's because you have heard and heard so much word. You've seen so many miracles. You've seen the mighty hand of God at work so much in this town, in this region. You've experienced miracles that no other city have seen. You've seen so much of God's hand. And you have not believed it has not brought you to faith. So as a result, I'm wiping y'all out. Not y'all, but the citizens and the residents of Capernaum. And that's what he did. I told you last week, the city doesn't even exist anymore on a map as an actual city. There's no more... Uh, there's no more city limits from the standpoint of being an incorporated town. They're just an area because God wiped them out. He wiped them out. He said, you can't exist. And I think the message to us in that particular area is that we've seen so much of God's work in our lives. We have to be careful that we don't let doubt and insincerity and sin and other things creep in and undermine what we know about God. We have to make sure that we don't see God's work in our life and then forget and doubt and dismiss God's ability to move in our lives. We have to make sure that we don't be full of all these opportunities to hear the word, see the word, read the scripture, sing his praises, see his miracles in the lives of us and others, and then doubt and dismiss God and reject him. It's like Hebrews 6 says, how can you have tasted of this good word and then turn your back? How can you do that? 
You read Hebrews 6, it's a scathing report on people that have heard the word, seen the hand of God, seen the work of God, seen the miracles of God, and then turned their backs and walked away. Mm. It's almost like God said, there's a real hot part of Hades that I have reserved for you people that do that. <laughs> You're going to be right there where the temperature is a thousand degrees. But he doesn't say that. But it's really amazing that these people in Capernaum were exposed to so much of God's power and they still didn't believe. And I think I said it last week and I'll repeat it. It's worth repeating, Rod. No wonder the Lord said to the rich man uh, when he was in heaven, in hell, actually talking to Abraham about Lazarus putting some water in his, on his finger and touching the tip of his tongue. And he said, and also while you're at it, Abraham, could you send Lazarus back to tell my five brothers who were back on earth that they don't come to this horrible place. Send Lazarus back to tell them to get saved. Remember the response? He said, oh, no. Oh, no. They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Bible. They have the word. Faith comes by hearing, not by miracles. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Miracles is not what save people. Faith is what saves people by hearing the word of God. It's the power of God that draws us. With love and kindness have I drawn thee. Not with miracles and signs and wonders. Right? God's word draws us. God's word saves us. God's word heals us. God's word delivers us. He sent his word, Psalms 107.20 says. He sent his word and healed their diseases and delivered them from their destructions. That's what the Bible says. He didn't send a miracle. He sent his word, the power of God's word. Are you all with me? Are you all with me online? He sent his word and healed their diseases and delivered them from their many destructions, some translations say. So, so this, this, this Capernaum is an important city because it's a type and shadow to me of Christians who hear the word and walk away, who hear the word and don't listen to the word, who hear the word and don't follow or obey the word. Don't be a Capernaum, be a Berean. And don't get me started on the Bereans over in Acts 17, 11, because that'll be another 10 minutes. And I need to be wrapping it up. I need to be at the end of the sermon. And I'm at the beginning. I'm on word number one, but I'm just going to do one word today. And that word is compassion. This man showed compassion. You guys, if you don't take anything else from this sermon, take away the word compassion. I looked it up in the dictionary. The word compassion, I think I, there's a great definition of it. Let me give you just the, the basic definition. The basic definition of compassion is sympathy and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. That's what the word means in a Webster dictionary, compassion. And you say, well, why are you bringing up compassion? I'm bringing up compassion because I think one of the components of this centurion's faith was that he, the Bible says in, 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 in verse 2 of Luke 7, that he had a servant who was sick at the point of death who was highly valued by him, and he wanted Jesus to come and heal him. That's compassion. That's compassion. That's sympathy. That's a great way to be. That's a great way for us to be compassionate for other people. And actually, the Greek word for compassion means that it is, it is to suffer together. We go through it together. I love that. So compassion is not just standing off and saying, oh, well, I feel sorry for you. Peace. I love you. I'll put up a prayer for you. No, compassion is, hey, I'm going to go through this with you. 
I got your back. Let's go arm in arm, Lex. We're going through this together. I'm not going to let you suffer alone. If you're going through the storm, I'm going through the storm with you. Amen? That's compassion. That's what this centurion did. He said, I'm not going to let my servant sit here and suffer with paralysis and this excruciating pain, as Sister Annie described it, and die, and I'm going to do nothing about it. So he, he, he pulled, pulled together all of his vast resources and said, hey, I've heard about Jesus. Will you ask him to heal my servant? Not come to my house. Not darken my door. He doesn't have to come to my village. He can just speak the word from wherever he is. If he's in San Francisco, he can heal my servant in New Jersey. So the Monday morning moment, the Monday morning moment, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a Monday morning moment that I kind of repeated last week, but I think it's, I didn't say it last week. I made, I made this statement, but I didn't call it a Monday morning moment. I'm going to call it a Monday morning moment today. Our faith in God cannot be based on the results that we want, but our faith in God has to be based on who God is. I'll say it again because it's a little long. Our faith in God cannot be based on the results that we want. But our faith in God must be based on who God is. And that's really the secret of this entire lesson. The centurion believed that Jesus is God. And that's really what our lessons have been about in Quest 52. It's going to take me a while to get over saying Core 52. Because I've been saying core 52 for two years. It took us two years to get through a book that was designed to get through in one year. So I, t I will, will probably say core 52 a few more times. If I slip and say core, I mean quest. So quest 52, lesson one last week and lesson two this week is about knowing that Jesus is God. And a centurion's success, the secret to his success, the secret sauce is that he knew that Jesus was God, and therefore all authority was in his hands, including geography, including the fact that he ain't got to be in Akron to heal somebody in Seattle. Because if he's God, he only has to speak the word, and whatever he needs to happen in Seattle will happen whether he's there or not. Amen? Yeah, I'm getting way ahead of the lesson for next week. So there you go. Our faith in God can't be based on results we want. Our faith in God has to be based on who God is. God is God whether we get the result that we want or not. God is still God whether he heals me or not. If, he take, if this is his way of taking me to glory, God is still God. He's no less because he chose not to heal me. He's no less because he chose not to give me that job. He's no less because he didn't choose to give me the promotion I thought I deserved. He is no less God because he didn't give me the money that I needed at the time to pay that bill. And the thing got shut off. He's still God. He's still good. He's still great. Why he chose not to answer my prayer is his business. But he is still who he is. And my response to him have to be, Lord, I love you. I trust you. I will obey you. I will serve you. I will submit to you. I will seek you. I will praise you. I will worship you in spite of the fact that things don't look the best right now. Faith is not about getting results that we want. 
faith is about knowing that God is God regardless of what's going on on earth, regardless of what's going on in my life. God is still God. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. That's it. That's the key. Is God God? He has to be good whether things are good or not. God has to be God whether things are working out right now or not. He still has to be God. And by, by the way, that really shows faith. When you can keep on trusting and keep on believing and keep on praising and keep on worshiping and keep on reading and keep on seeking, even when everything around you is crumbling. Fida, Fida, yes. Oof. Psalms 8, 3 says, when I look into the heavens... At the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That's just God being God. What a what a God. What an amazing God that we serve. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap because he is God. Amen. Lord Jesus, as we close this sermon, but not this service, because we still have some songs of praise that we want to send up before you as a sweet-smelling savor. Please receive our music, receive our hymns, receive our worship as we praise you, Lord, in spirit and in truth. And we ask that this word that we've heard from Luke 7, we didn't get very far, but Lord, as far as we got, we ask you to take that word and multiply it in our hearts. May it not return void, which we know it will not, but may it, may it encourage us, may it inspire us, may it transform us, May it give us power. May it empower and infuse us with strength to keep on going through this week. Keep us, Lord, another week with the power of your word. May we grow. May we share this word with others. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.